His wounds has paid our ransom. You can't get better than that. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds has paid our ransom. Sing it with me. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds has paid my ransom. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do with you, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. It's hard to preach after hearing words so pure, words so holy. I request you pray for your kahu as I try to divide this message down, rightly divide it down and present it to you as I am struggling with emotion right now, and I don't want my sermon to be, or God's word, to be determined by my emotion, but determined by His Spirit. Amen? It's not the same at times. But I wanted to announce that next Sunday, we're going to begin our church outreach uh, preparation. And so we are inviting the whole entire church after service is Pauhana to remain in church, and we're going to start working on some uh, chorus and songs to prepare us for the holiday season, the Christmas season. Uh, In this COVID-19, we feel like one of the ways our church can be a blessing to the community is through songs. We love singing. We love worshiping. And so one of my backgrounds is music. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to have all 50 of us, 60 of us, children all the way to Kupuna, Keiki all the way to Kupuna, everybody. Just remain in here, and we're going to learn some songs to allow us to advance some praise in this town of Hilo. Can I get a witness here, right? And so it's something that everybody gets to be a part of. You don't have to have a great singing voice. And Kahu Marcus has said that he got the first solo if he has the opportunity. And we know we will rebuke that in the name of Jesus and put him away from the microphone, right? And unless he has to preach, then absolutely. But just pray for that. I would say that too as we prepare as a fellowship in this outreach. Would you be... Would you get the word out maybe to some of, the, some of you who are nurses and who works in homes and all that? Would you talk to your bosses and all that, tell that our church would love to come over and sing, you know, songs of praise, adoration, encouragement, songs of aloha, you know, to our community. And I know it's COVID-19 and there's kind of CDC rules we have to abide, but we'll figure it out, right? God is controlling all of that, but nevertheless, the one thing we're going to do forever, say it with me, one, two, three. Worship, right? Say it again. One, two, three. Worship. There won't be any preaching. There won't be any missions, mission trips. There will only be the worship of the king. And so I want to encourage you in that way. Today we're starting a new series. And the new series is called Life with Jesus. We're picking back up in the gospel of Mark. How much of you have missed the study of the gospel of Mark, right? Me too. So we're, we're an expository preaching church. Meaning we love preaching straight from books of the Bible, verse by verse. 
In the last couple of years, we finally landed on chapter 11. We took some breaks here and there to go address some topical issues. Um, but we're moving forward with this new series in chapter 11 called Life with Jesus. And I want you to see on the screen what Life with Jesus is all about. Here's the heart of our series. Christianity is all about, say that big R word with me, one, two, three, relationships. Say it again, relationships. Our relationship with Christ, our relationship with his church, and our relationship with others, right? For Ohana Church, this is actually lived out through what we call our mission statement. It's up on the screen. If you know it, we may say it, one, two, three. We exist to love people to the beauty of Christ. Many of you may not know this, but this verse is actually derived from the prophecy of Isaiah and also Romans chapter 10, when both Isaiah and the Apostle Paul says, blessed are the feet who brings the good news. Well, that is our call. Our call is that we would bring the good news. Our main priority, some people call it core values or code of ethics. Our main priority as a church is that we would proclaim the gospel. We'll be centered on the gospel, which is the good news, right, that Isaiah and Paul talks about. We'll be focused on the gospel, and we'll be urgent about the gospel. Why start a big mass choir out of this church to sing in the community? Because we want to be centered on the gospel. We want this city to be focused on the gospel, and we want this town to, to, to know that we're urgent about the gospel. The gospel points to Christ. This is why the series is Life with Christ. But one of the ways we are faithful to expository preaching is not just sticking to books of the Bible verse by verse, but we're also faithful to what is called a historical analysis of the entire book. And what I want to give you is I want to remind you of some things that we know about the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark was the first written gospel out of the four gospels we see canonized in Scripture. Mark is the shortest out of the four Gospels in letters. Mark was also a cousin of Barnabas and a laborer to Paul, as we see in Acts, the book of Acts. Mark was also known as being unreliable. Let's say it in Hawaiians, all right? Hawaiian, you ready? Kolohe. The bago was kolohe, okay? He was unreliable. We see in the account of Acts that on a mission trip, he deserted his cousin Barnabas and the Apostle Paul just left him stranded. And then when they finally got back together, Paul rebuked him and also had a conflict with the cousin Barnabas. And because, because blood was thicker than water, Barnabas picked his cousin Mark over the Apostle Paul. Now you say, well, that's a, that's a mean brotherhoods right there. No, I think Barnabas made the right choice. Why? Because Mark was weak in his faith. And when I say faith, I don't mean faith that we believe in Christ, but faith as in doctrine. He was weak in his Christianity. Therefore, his cousin sticks with him, and they both split apart. And Paul continues on westward to, towards Asia Minor. And what scholars would say is that Barnabas and Mark continue southwards towards more Africa area. Not to Africa, but in that direction. And what we see inside this continual writing, specifically in the letter of Colossians and Philemon, Mark is actually talked highly about Paul. So we see this redemptive plan from Mark's unreliability to now being reliable in the Colossian letter and the letter to Philemon. 
Paul writes highly about this brother who was unreliable and kolohe, and now he has grown up. Gentlemen, do we need to grow up this morning? Females, women, vahines, do we not need to grow up this morning, right? We need to grow up. So praise God for that. There's hope. But also we see that Mark wrote specifically to the Gentiles. Gentiles aren't Jewish. They're opposite of Jewish. They're Romans, right? They're Greek. They're from Europe, more Asia Minor, which is Turkey and Greece and, and Italy, known as Rome at the time. And he wrote specifically to the Christian that was in Rome. One thing you may not know historically is that Mark was also known as John. His first name was not Mark. His first name was John. His middle name was Mark. Now, there's multiple accounts of this name in all the Gospels. Therefore, he was known as John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. He wasn't John the Baptist. He wasn't John the father, the Zebedee, the father. He wasn't John the beloved who wrote Revelation, first and second, third John, and the Gospel of John. He was John Mark. But you may ask something very specific. How is Mark connected with Christ? He really is not. Mark was not a discipler of Jesus. He wasn't connected with Jesus when Jesus was on the earth. But what history tells us, and this is why expository preaching and a hermeneutical process is important when studying the scripture, he was actually a disciple of Peter. And we know this based on the first century theologian named Justin Martyr, who lived around 155 AD. He read in the books of the memoirs of Peter, the apostle. This is the diary of the apostle Peter. He said that there was, a, there was a phrase or a term that was in Peter's diary that said the sons of thunder. There is only one gospel out of the four gospels that addresses this term, the sons of thunder, which is in connection with John and James. And only Jesus gave that name to them. And Mark is the only gospel that talks about this specific name. So based on this historical analysis, we can say that the gospel of Mark is credible. And we could also say that the gospel of Mark was more the gospel of Peter. Because the gospel, Mark wrote the gospel based on Peter's interpretation, right, of his life with Jesus. So when we, when we look at this text, a rightfully t- way to understand the text, right, is historically. And since we agree with this, right, hermeneutically, right, I want us to all stand in the reading of God's perfect word. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 11. And I want you to find comfort. If you don't have your scriptures, it's up on the screen. All right, I want you to hear these words. Now when they, the disciples and Jesus, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately, remember those word, that word that's significant in the Gospel of Mark, immediately as you enter it, you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever sat on. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you why you are doing this, say the Lord. Say that word. The Lord has need of it and will send it back here. Say that word again. Immediately. 
And they went away and found a coat tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloak on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And when those who went before and those who followed were shouting, say that word, one, two, three, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he and the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. God, I pray that this word will do what only your spirit can do in our lives. We can act like we're here at church in response to your goodness. But in all reality, we are wicked, in need of salvation, in need of sanctification, to be reminded that we're justified by faith, and that God, what you, you start in us, you will perfect, you will complete, you will glorify to the very end. And God, I do pray for this time, that as we deal with the maturity of different ages, different people, that Lord, we would give our hearts to you and understand that you are in complete control of everything that's going on this morning. So as a request, give us ears to hear and a heart to receive from your spirit alone, through your word alone. In Christ's name we pray and we say, Amen. You may be seated. It is evident that as you look at this text, these verses, this section is actually known as Palm Sunday which begins the week of Passion Week. And this is the excitement of preaching expositionally. Because we don't just preach uh, verses based on the season of life. As you know, ultimately, people would preach Passion Week on what week, everybody? E- hey, you guys all come on here, Apollo all right? Easter. Right, But the thing about expository preaching is you can't just pick anything from the text and make it sound like what you want it to sound like. You have to preach what it says. A lot of people have these concepts of this is the message I want to preach. So they get the topic first and then try to find a passage that links up with their topic. That is called an eisegetical way of handling the text, meaning you lead into the text. But the real way of understanding the text is the word exegesis. Say it with me, one, two, three. Exegesis, meaning it's derived and it comes from the text. So the greatest principle we've learned, help me out, right, if you know it, that we always let Scripture, help me out, interpret what? Scripture. If you live life looking at Scripture that way, then you would honor Christ with this. But it's not Easter. Can I get a witness? It's not the norm of Easter. But again, I would say it is Easter. Can I get a witness, right? It is why, because people are lost in need of salvation. We find salvation in life in Christ. 
And as we look at this today, I want you to see some core realities in our text today. Here's three views of life with Jesus, right? Number one, life with Jesus is a call to follow him. Now, the word that stands out to me is the word call. Now, hear me out. If God has called you, listen to me, that is the greatest gift you will ever receive in your life. Why? Because this calling is very specific. It's a call, listen to me, not to abandon Jesus, but to follow Jesus. And I would say that the opposite is true. It's a call. Since you're following Jesus, you're going to abandon the things that bring you and your sin glory and not Christ. Are you with me? Men of God, you're going to, when you catch feelings, you're still going to lead your people, your, your family spiritually. Man, women of God, when your husband is not living up to his standard, you're still going to prostrate before the Lord and thank him, Lord, for giving you a husband. Can I get a witness, right? Right? I was hoping that every woman said, hallelujah, up in here. Right? And then the reality is maybe that's not the case. But thank God that God calls man, woman, and child to himself. Right? To himself. So the word follow is used 90 times in the New Testament. Though it is not used specifically in our verses today, it's actually implied. How do we know that? Because these disciples are traveling with the Lord Jesus. In fact, the word follow literally means to, to attend or accompany someone. In other words, you could say that you are an understudy of an expert. Right now, let me say this. You're not the expert. I'm not the expert, right? We're all understudies. To the day we die, like the disciples, we are understudies of the expert who is who? Jesus, right? So life with Jesus is a present, active, ongoing relationship. In verse 1, we see this lived out through Jesus, right? They traveled and they journeyed together. They followed Jesus. They were on their way back from Jerusalem to, I mean, back from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it's 21 miles, guys. From Jericho to Jerusalem, as we see in chapter 10, going to chapter 11, it's 21 miles to get back to Jerusalem. And it gives some stopping routes on the way, right? They're Bethpage. Bethany, and the Mount of Olives that we talked about last week, a centerpiece of Jesus' ministry with the disciples. So as we look at the geography of it, the map, God and his disciples are coming east towards Jerusalem. And what we see is two realities of life with Jesus being a call to follow him. Number one, we see intimate fellowship. We see intimate fellowship. At this point in the life of Jesus, this is about three and a half years, scholars would say. His disciples walking with him. If there's anything they had with Jesus was an intimate love fellowship with him. And this is how we know they had that intimacy with God. They were called by him, right? They are a part of his earthly ministry, both preaching and healing. And they encountered moments of intimate dialogue and fellowship with the Savior of the world. So here's a reality truth that we can hold on to today, right? That following Jesus is an intimate call 
to live life with the Savior and the Lord of the universe. Hear me out, saints, okay? This is a personal call. Can I get an amen out there, right? This is a humbling call. Why? Ulumaika prayed it. Because we're undeserving of God. This should humble us that God would call us to his ohana, right? Thirdly, this is also a dangerous call. Now, in America, we don't really understand this part of danger because we have the freedom of speech so far, right? So far. Listen to me. God will weed weed out the true believers from the false believers when our religious liberty in America is taken away. You can talk however you want, however you like, because the amendment protects you. But never in scripture do you see religious liberty. Therefore, you should be blessed that you live in a place called America. I know I come from a Hawaiian background. There is hakaka with that understanding. I understand. But listen to me. You should be blessed, those of you who live on government assistance, that you get government assistance. Because if you live in nations like Iran, where our brothers and sisters live, there's no government assistance. Right? And and so I I want you to be very, very adamant about this truth. A call to follow Christ is also a call of warning. America will not always be the same in our religious liberty. I believe the way it's going, we may lose our our religious liberty. And if we do, will the church of God arise? Not just saying, yeah, oh yeah, I will, I will. But many in that day will forsake the Lord Jesus. Many will say, didn't we do this in your name in Matthew 7? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we go to church? Did we not give to the church? And then Jesus told them, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity and lawlessness. Depart from me. May those words never be expressed to you, saints of God. Do not play church. Don't treat church, right? Don't treat Christianity like it's my side chick. It's my side job. I know that hurts, that word, I know. But that, isn't that how we treat Jesus sometimes? That he's second fiddle to everything else? Not much amens this morning. But that's the reality. It's a call to be warned about. But listen to me. It's a call that is worthy. It's a call that is worthy. I want you to be very clear. That which is worth living for. Is worth dying for. That which is worth living for is worth dying for. And the Christian life, listen to me, saints, is worth everything. Why? Because Jesus is everything. Jesus is worth everything. So here's a reality truth, right? Our worth in Christ is marked by his calling to intimately follow him. We have exhausted this statement, haven't we, Ohana? We have exhausted this statement, right? That intimacy with Jesus is more important than ministry for Jesus. Let me say that again, all right? That intimacy with Jesus is far more important than ministry for Jesus. If somebody's lacking Christian competency, the fruit of the Spirit, right, in our congregation, is always directed, listen to me, is there, it's not directed to how much they don't do, or do for the church or for God. It's deeper than that. It's their time spent with the Lord is not existing. Can I get a witness? 
How many of you would agree that somebody could evaluate your life just by looking at you, right, based on your time spent with Jesus, right? Me too. My wife can know when, oh, Hawaiian, you need to go in your closet and spend some time with the Lord right now, you know? Same like with her. That's the reality. Because we think we got to do more. We think we got to do more in the community. We got to be involved in all this. No, listen to me. Anything we do, all right, if it has priority on it, must be intimacy with Christ. To have intimacy with Christ is to know that God has called you not to do something for him, but to be with him. Have you ever heard that? I thought you have to go to church. I thought you cannot drink. You cannot smoke. You cannot do all this, all rules and regulations. This is what I thought. But when I looked to Christ, he wasn't calling me to fix myself and my habits. Christ was calling me to something deeper, rooted. Intimacy. Time spent with him. Therefore, he calls us to intimate fellowship. Therefore, number two, intimate fellowship results into obedience. Verses 1 to 6. Jesus showcased his lordship among his disciples through the prediction and foreknowledge of a significant event that will take place in just a few seconds. What does Jesus say? Hey, you two, he says his two disciples, go to Jerusalem, all right, right before you get there, okay, look around the corner, go and have one donkey, actually one baby donkey that nobody has ever ridden. Okay, bro, you go grab that donkey, you bring him back to me here on Mount Olive. All right? All right? And in the reality, Jesus said, if somebody says, what are you doing with it? Uh, you just tell them, here's a big word, that the Lord is in need of it and he will return it. This is one thing that is very significant in the text. If you look at the verse, the word the Lord is what theologian calls a messianic secret. I don't know if you knew this, but not one time in all of the Gospel of Mark do we see this word Lord used. From the mouth of Jesus. Now Jesus made, made assumptions of that I am who, who I am. You know, he made those assumptions. But in this reality, it's the first time we see in the account of Mark that Jesus says that he is the Lord. There's a lot of speculation on this word Lord, uh, but it's the word Chorios, right? Chorios means either Lord or Master. It's used over 700 times in the New Testament. So there is a debate whether it's an earthly Lord Right or a heavenly Lord, and I would say that it's both and. It's both a earthly Lord and a heavenly Lord. It's really the Lord of the universe, and this is my conviction. Right, the key, the key to this understanding of God being Lord is our understanding of obedience. I grew up in a church that focused on obedience being the work. If you love God, you will what? Obey him because you heard it, right? You heard it in the text. Jesus tells Peter in one of the gospels, right? Peter, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. In other words, obey me. But the root of every Christian is not conditioned in you or my response. The root of every doctrine and study of the gospel is rooted in love. Not love created by an organization who's redefined love. Not love that's redefined by this, the culture and context, but love that's defined by Jesus. Auntie Jackie told me a couple years ago that I really never know till she told me and I affirmed it. But when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, 
It talks about the love passage, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is that. You know what you could do with that? Love is more than an action, right? Love is a person. So you could literally switch that word love to the person of who? Jesus. So you could literally say it that way. Jesus is kind. Jesus is patient. Jesus endures. Jesus protects. All these words that Paul explains in his love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Now when we hear the word, Peter, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's no longer seen that in order for me, right, to show God my approval in front of him, that I got to love him. No. Because love cannot come from us directly. Love can only come from the one who is love, Christ himself. Now, that is worth living for. That is worth dying for. How, do we, how does he demonstrate his love? Hawaiians, listen up. That while you were dead in your sin, he died for you. You can't get better than that. That's the love we're talking about. Christian, can I be honest with you? A lot of us, you know, a lot of us live on this earth to be love rather to live from love. Let me say that again. Because we're so conditional in our mind, in our train of thought, we lead, we, we live our life in hoping that we would get love. But those who belong to the King of Kings are already love. If I pastored this church based on you loving me, I've fallen, I'm going to fall. I'm going to quit today. I'm going to give my resignation. Why? Because you got some pilau bagas out there. Only one laugh, right? And guess what? I would point the finger right back to me. Apart from Christ, I'm haughty. I'm arrogant. I am prideful. But this is what love does. Love conquers all of that. Who is Jesus? So in this text, we see that Jesus reveals his messianic secret, that he is the Lord. And the disciples obey Jesus in verses 1 to 6. We see in this text, they go and they do exactly what Jesus says. And what's happening is that Jesus is fulfilling a messianic prophecy that we see in Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 9. Where it talks about the king sitting on a pure donkey. This coat is actually a donkey. And that he will come into the city, right? He'll come into the city. And he would reveal to us that he is the light of the world. Jesus would fulfill this messianic prophecy in this chapter. So when it comes to obedience, we can't look to what we don't do or do do. When we look to obedience, we got to look to Christ, who is the only one who has truly been obedient. And anything we do is the result of Christ's obedience. Therefore, here's a biblical truth. Obedience is the result of intimate fellowship with Christ. You cannot experience true biblical obedience apart from being intimate and in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. When you spend time with the Lord, isn't it good? Let me be honest sometime. Does it always feel good? <laughs> Heck no, because the mind is weary, yeah? The wine gallivant all over the place, yeah? Get spiritual ninjas knickknacking in the mind, yeah? We're like, God, man, you better star dice these buggers because I say going right, left, center, middle, north, south, east, west in my mind. How many of you like that? You start reading and some things come up in your mind like, waka waka. You don't even know the language. Waka waka. Well, let me interpret that. Piece of junk. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But that's the reality. 
Obedience is not the means. Obedience is the result. Simply because Jesus obeyed his father. So what we're going to look at, let's move on further. Number two, life with Jesus is a call to worship him. Okay, in verses 7 and 10, right, we see that a few weeks ago, you know, that our, our melee team got together. And this is how verse 10, 7 to 10 is lived out for us. Uh, our melee team got together, and we talked about this philosophy of worship, our view of worship. And I want to share with you what we came out with. Here's a biblical truth on the idea of worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Can I get a witness here, right? Amen? Worship is a lifestyle dependent and in service to Christ. Now think about the disciples, right? They are serving Christ. They're dependent on Christ. Why? Because he sent two to randomly just grab a random donkey from the barn, guys. You know what I'm saying? But because they spent time with Jesus, they trusted Jesus. And Jesus foretells it, and we see in verses 1 through 6 that it actually takes place. It happens. They find this donkey. They get this donkey. They bring it back to Jesus. This is worship, guys. Worship is not just singing a few songs. Worship is a lifestyle. How we read our word is worship. When we read our word is worship. When we pray is worship. When we go to that job site that we don't want to go to to make a living wage, that is worship. When we give of our time, our energy, our resources, that is worship. What we see inside this whole picture is worship. Christ is demonstrating worship. His disciples, through Christ, is demonstrating worship. And I want you to see how Jesus was worshipped in these verses, verses 7 and 10. Number one, we see that Jesus is honored personally. His followers bring the coat back to him. And when they bring this coat, this donkey, back to him, they went a step further, guys. Guess what they did? They put what? Their garments, their cloaks, on top of the donkey. Now, last time I remember, Hawaiians, donkeys no smell good. Can I get a witness, right? So, what do you think that garment will smell like when they get them back? As we say in Hawaiian, hauna o miko. You know what I'm saying? A bugger not going to smell good. That's the reality. It's not going to smell good, but that was their worship. They gave their best for the one who is deserving the best. You heard me? They gave their best to the one who deserves the best. They gave the Savior of the world their best clothes. Not only did they, they didn't stop there, as you look in the verses, 7 to 11, you also see that they put coats, their cloaks and their coats on the ground so that the dirty, poopy, stink donkey with the pure Savior on its back could ride on it. Are you realizing the holiness of God today? The righteousness of God. Jesus was honored personally. Jesus was honored. Secondly, Jesus was honored publicly. It uses the word many in these verses. Verse 7 to verse 11, it uses the word many, that many joined from the front and many joined from the back. They also went into the wilderness, wherever there was wilderness, right? And they cut down palm trees. And hence the word Palm Sunday, they waved the palms over Jesus while he was entering the city as a sign of the Savior of the world has come to rescue God's people. This is a prophecy fulfilled. But lastly, life with Jesus is a call to worship this way. Jesus is honored 
prophetically. Jesus is honored prophetically in verses 9 and 10. We see a significant word that is used prophetically in the Old Testament. It's the word Hosanna. And the word Hosanna simply means to save us and to pray for us. Or in other words, you could say this, save us, we beg you, Lord. That's what Hosanna means. But the people are actually quoting the book of Psalms 118. Look at it on the screen. It says, save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. This psalm specifically, Psalms 118, and a few other psalms are known as the Egyptian hell. Because it's connection with the story of Moses that God would rescue Moses and his people from Egypt. So there's Egyptian hells, right, or heralds, right, praises in all the psalms that confess God's goodness of being righteous and faithful to them in their exiting out of Egypt. So now, fast forward in 1,500 years later, to 2,000 years later, Jesus is on the scene, and now he's about to do the same thing. Bola is going to look different. Jesus is not saving his people from Rome, who they were under at the time, or, or Egypt, who they were under in the Old Testament. Jesus is actually saving them and rescuing them from their sin, from their damna- damnation. And, and I, point, I want you to know this, right? That Hosanna wasn't just used for a cry to save us and beg, beg the Lord Jesus to save us. Hosanna was also used as a symbolic that God has saved us. So when they said, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they're giving honor and extol and praise to God. Oh, that God's church would worship him today. Oh, that God's church would be filled of their sin. Oh, that God's church would repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh, that the church of God in this world, in these islands, in the continents of this world, would confess that Jesus is worthy and worthy to be praised. He is the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the share of 10,000. He is God with us. Oh, can I get some praise up in this room? That's the Jesus we worship. He is worth everything. He's worth everything. He's worth my life. He's worth your life. He's worth my donkey, a.k.a. my resources. He is worth my suburban. Take it, Lord. Take it. When the prosperity gospel is saying, this is what we got to get, the true gospel is saying, this is what you got to give. Give it away. Nothing in return. This is Jesus. But for the sake of Christ, there's one thing we can give God. Praise, adoration, exaltation to his holy name. Can I get a witness up in here? That's the Jesus we praise. That's why we praise him. For this, I give you praise. We praise him. We praise Him not simply because what He's done for us. We praise Him because He is God. Are you with me? We don't praise Him because he, we are benefactors of the King of Kings. We praise Him because He's sovereign. He's Lord of all. And He is in due for your affection, my attention, our will, our might, our love. 
towards him. The verse doesn't stop there in the Psalms. Psalms explain, explain, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over my words, excuse me. Paul continues, not Paul, the Psalms continue in verse 26 by saying this about Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes, help me out, in the what? Name of the Lord. Let's stop right there. This is significant. Because that's the same phrase Jesus uses with his disciples in these verses of when they take the donkey, let them know that the Lord has need for it. Don't you love it when the Old Testament and New Testament like reveals credibility among each other? Look, he says, he says this, right? The Lord, the master of the universe. And look, he says this, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Ohana, this Jesus of Scripture is worth our attention and our affection. Like his disciples and those who joined in this moment, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, right? May we also join in the course of heaven today that our Christ, our Jesus, is deserving of much praise. And lastly, we come to our final point of our text today. Life with Jesus is a call to remain with him. Verse 11 is clear. We notice that Jesus in verse 11 did not just enter the city, but he also entered the temple. And he also fulfilled another prophecy made with the prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1, that the Messiah would enter the temple. We found out later that Jesus would not stay in that temple very long. But he would look, he would observe it, and then he would go on with his day. And, he, and here's the thing I want us to hold on to. What I want us to hold on to is that through all that we just talked about, even from chapters 1 of Mark to chapters 11, his followers remained with him. Ohana, life with Jesus is a call to remain with him. I hope you got that. The life with Jesus is a call to remain with him. Look at the text. His disciples just walked 21 miles from Jericho. They did not say, I tired Jesus. Can you let me know? Can you make my halit right here on the Mount of Olives? I go more more a little bit. No. There was no break in the journey. He calls them to go into the city. They journeyed with him. Why? Because life with Jesus to remain with him. Secondly, his disciples showcase his glory, his glorious entry into the city. Thirdly, his disciples followed him to the temple. And finally, his disciples left the city on that day and ended up at, back at Bethany. This is a beautiful point here because Mark is describing that Jesus, right, was so important to his disciples that the result of his magnificent, glorious power was intimate fellowship with one another. And I think 
H. A. Ironside says it the best of this last moment before the night was up on Palm Sunday. He said that he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. In self-imposed banishment, I mean, this is what Jesus did to himself. He did not spend a night in the holy city during Passion Week. He recognized already that he was to suffer without the gate, as Hebrew states. For him, Jesus, there was no place in the city of the great King, Matthew five. However, listen to this, guys. He found a refuge among the poor and the lowly, and with those who waited for the consolation, consolation of Israel. Why does he say poor and lowly? Well, the disciples were not the ones you would pick. He had some fishermen, so we got more stink people. We got like human stink donkeys going on around Jesus, right? But not only that, right? We had tax collectors, cheaters, thieves. There were also know-it-alls, punchy people. Now, you know what I'm saying when I say punchy, right? Peter, right? But also there were. Religious people among them, like Nathaniel. His brother James was a well versed, well versed in the scriptures. Theologians, some would say. But if there's anything we can take value in today, saints of God, is that life with Jesus, right, is a call to remain with Jesus. Thank God, as we learned a few weeks ago, that our salvation is not determined. But by man's condition, responds to the Lord of the universe. But salvation is completely on the back and arms of Jesus Himself. I want to remind you: this call that God has called us to remain in is a personal call. It's a humbling call. It's a dangerous call. But we know this. We know this that this week in this text. We know it's dangerous because it's Passion Week, and what happens in Passion Week leads up to the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. So this call that God calls us to, saints of God, is a worthy one. A one worth, hey, a one worth telling people the truth, even if they catch feelings. A one worth. Dying for, because we want God magnified and all so glorified. I end my conclusion with this, and they will respond. A call to follow Jesus is a call to worship Jesus, and a call to remain with Jesus is a call that surpasses anything this world has to offer us. It's a call of hope. It's a call of peace. It's a call for salvation in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, and in which we reply, Hosanna. Say it with me, Hosanna.